This is Unbroken, healing through storytelling. Just to let you know, we have a vodcast on YouTube where you can watch the edited highlights of the episode. And don't forget to subscribe. If you fancy the full audio version, symbols, just keep listening. Oh, and if you've got a second, please give us five stars and a review. It really helps us stand out and get this important message to even more people that need to hear it the most. Meantime, enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Jennifer Fraser. She is the founder of The Bullied Brain, an award-winning teacher, best-selling author and unlikely whistleblower. Her new book, The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health, tells the story of her journey to repair after battling to protect students from teacher abuse and failing. With a PhD in comparative literature, she believed that there must be research that could help her recover. That's when she discovered what scientists know about the amazing powers we have within to repair our hurt brains. So welcome to the show, Jennifer. What does that word unbroken mean to you? Well, I went uh, as a middle-aged woman, so five years ago, I went to the police and I reported the child abuse that I endured in public school from the age of 13 when the grooming began until I was 17 and I stumbled away. And I suffered for four years uh, at the hands of teachers when we had physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. We have so much science from doctors and psychiatrists, psychologists, and neuroscientists, and we are not applying it to this crisis. How do you take what's happened to you and use the science to actually set yourself on a healing path? She came up to me in the library and she said, I need to talk to you. And you know, you have daughters, you can tell when there's something wrong. So we went outside and I said, well, you know, what's the matter? She said, I'm being sexually harassed by a teacher. So I said to her, well, we need to go and speak to the principal. Mr. Calderwood will know what to do. She says to me, it is Mr. Calderwood. I want every single young person, every 10 year old to 24 year old, I want them to know that if their brain is signaling these types of, um, this noise and this chatter and this dissociation, if it's having this horrible reaction where they just want to disappear, I want them to know that they need to go straight to the best brain scientist, the best psychiatrist, the best mental health professional, the best doctor. So welcome to the show, Jennifer. How lovely to have you here. How are you doing this morning over in Canada? I'm doing wonderful, Madeline. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking very forward to our conversation. Ah, you're welcome and likewise. So as you know, my show is called Unbroken and I know you from my Facebook group. So I know you know this question I always ask everyone and I'm going to ask you is what does that word unbroken mean to you? Well, I went uh, as a middle-aged woman. So five years ago, I went to the police and I reported the child abuse that I endured in public school from the age of 13 when the grooming began until I was 17 and I stumbled away. And I suffered for four years uh, at the hands of teachers when we had physical, emotional and sexual abuse. And when I was speaking to the police, I started to cry and I said, they finally broke me. And after that time, I sort of went through my life with this kind of dissociated personality, this very broken self. And when I started to do the research on the neuroscience, which was five years ago, I realized no one can ever break you. Your brain is absolutely unbreakable and it is the core of who you are. It is the, every decision you make, every feeling you have, every behavior, gesture, facial expression, it is your brain. And my brain is not broken and no one's is. 
And it was interesting reading your book because things that I felt or say about my own journey, I maybe didn't know the science behind it, but reading it, you know, I always say that the real essence of me could never be broken. They could never touch that. And I think, oh, now I know that's my brain speaking to me, you know, that, that inner fire or that, you know, whatever we're born with, that, that's what's left, that core inside, isn't it? Well, what was so interesting in the science was to discover that all forms of bullying and abuse. So these can be ones far less uh, traumatic than what you endured as a child. But I mean, emotional abuse, emotional neglect, uh, verbal abuse, all of these things that don't even touch the body, they can do unbelievable damage to the brain. They really do hurt the brain. But the bottom line is our brains are designed to heal. They are completely innately wired to recover. And this is what I found so inspiring is that no matter what you've been through, once you know the evidence-based practices, once you know the science, you can start a, a healing plan, literally put in a kind of medical intervention and get to work. And I just think all trauma victims need to know that science. Yeah, well, I think our biology is designed to survive. I know when we're caught in our trauma or whatever's happened to us, we don't feel that way, but actually we are, we are survivors. That's, that's biology that's in our cells really, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I thought a lot about, you know, looking at your work and what happened to you and your trauma, I started to really think more about shame and how shame operates and um, the ways in which you discovered uh, to replace shame with courage. And so I started to think about that from a science point of view. And, you know, shame really, just as you say, Madeline, it is a strategy on the brain's part to keep you alive. So when you are with someone or you have been with people who are very violent and aggressive and they lack empathy, your body will make you small, just like an animal. It will make you cower. It will make you communicate to them that you're no threat, that you will just submit to them in whatever way form they need. And then afterwards, when you're safe, that's when you need to make the decision to say, never again. I will never let anyone do that to me again. And your brain can, can manifest a lot of power in that moment. You can start to make yourself big. You can take a power pose. You can communicate to every person who you encounter in the rest of your life to say, don't mess with me. And that's a very active, courageous step to take. It's hard work. I don't want to make it seem easy it's hard it's, it's a process it's not like an overnight thing it is a process of stripping away the layers of trauma and shame but definitely one that i think we can get to but yes. so that's a little bit of my story and a little bit of yours but actually your story before the book started with your son monty didn't it you discovered that um while he was away on trips his basketball tournaments that he was having a tough time when he came back he told you about it well, what actually happened was I heard from other students. Mm -hmm. Usually children don't tell you when they're being abused by a teacher because we, we really impress upon our children from a very early age. We sculpt their brains, their neural networks to believe that teachers are to always be respected and that teachers are to be obeyed and that teachers actually assign value to them. They tell students what their uh, position is right now in the world and also the future. They can open doors and they can close doors in children's lives. And children are made aware of this very early. Children think it's their fault. Even teenagers have, have sort of 
absorbed this uh, culture to believe that if a teacher is behaving that way, surely the fault must be with them. They deserve it. I actually took direct testimonies from eight students and I heard this from them, was the school where you were a teacher at, wasn't it? I was the teacher yeah. at the school. Yeah. And so the headmaster asked me to take testimonies and I, and because you only, you know, students will only talk with a trusted individual. They're not going to go to an administrator. They don't know and tell them what has been going on. So I took these testimonies and I kept hearing from these boys that there were these vicious attacks. I was very innocent and naive and I, I didn't know anything about sex. You know, this is back in the 1980s. And, um, I, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand why middle-aged men, men that had children, wanted to be with teenage girls. It made no sense to my brain, basically. So I resisted. And um, even though I was targeted, and I became the focus of relentless humiliation. So when my son was being humiliated by teachers, it completely like shocked me back into, I know how bad this is. I know what this does. This is terrible. When a child reports abuse, they've known this since the 1980s in research. When a child reports abuse, the whole system goes 180 degrees. The child is re-victimized and the perpetrator of abuse, whether it's sexual, physical, or emotional, is protected by the system. It's in sports, it's at church, it's in clubs, you know, and yet we continue lurching forward with this broken system. And my goal, my absolute mission is to see that changed. But did they not start a smear campaign against you when you discovered this? Oh, yeah. No. It, honestly, I've never been through anything in, in my life that was like this. So what happened was I did, my dad's a lawyer. My grandfather was a judge. My uncle's a lawyer. I come from a, a very legal family. And so when I found out, what was happening. And I took direct testimonies. I had legal duty to report to the authorities. I had to report. I actually had to report to the police because certainly in my son's case, he was repeatedly assaulted by the teacher um, who would detain him for more yelling in the face. Well, that's assault. Um, but, you know, when you actually start to report these things and I went to the commissioner for teacher regulation, he ended up being completely corrupt. I have the corrupt reports sitting in my house um, and basically what you should do when you have adults behaving that way is rehabilitate them. Yeah. As, a, as we said at the beginning, our brains are completely innately wired to rehabilitate when we have issues. And when someone is behaving in a very aggressive bullying way, that is, that is a brain that has been traumatized. It's not natural. It's not healthy. It's not normal to behave that way. And so why don't we fix it rather than just. It makes hide me it. think of that. Um, expression hurt people hurt people exactly yeah i adapt that to hurt brains hurt they hurt inside they hurt other people and they hurt themselves and and we can fix it i mean it's like you find out about insulin can save people from diabetes we have so much science from doctors and psychiatrists psychologists and neuroscientists and we are not applying it to this crisis Mm -hmm. so it was because of that really that you decided to do this this deep dive into the bullied brain and how it, the impact and how we can recover. And that's why you decided to write your book really, wasn't it? Yeah. And, you know, in the book, as you said at the beginning, Madeline, I have a very traumatized brain myself. And this is why I have a lot of empathy for people with traumatized brains, because I've been there. I know what it's like to be, to be really destructive, actually, to my own self. I turned the abuse inward, but I could just as easily have turned it outward. I could have become a very emotionally or I could have wanted to humiliate 
the students that I taught. That would have been a very natural thing for me to do without recovering from my trauma. But I use the book as a way to say, okay, I'm going to fix my own brain. And if I can fix my own brain by following the science, that means everybody else can too. So I build in a lot of sort of activation steps, practical application. How do you take what's happened to you and use the science to actually set yourself on a, on a healing path? Mm-hmm. I guess you have to really be aware of what you're doing to start with, because if you don't know you're doing it, then, you know, we don't see it, do we? We don't see it until we see it. Well, it's, I like the fact that you put it that way, because... I think what we do is ignore our brains. All of us don't pay attention to our brains because we can't see them. And it's sort of a funny thing when you think about it. It's so simple. And yet we're highly visual creatures. And we live in a society that has to work hard to make us see things that aren't visible to the naked eye. So I use as as an analogy for this smoking. So when I was growing up, everybody smoked. It was normal behavior. You know, your doctor would smoke while he wrote your prescription. Like it was Mad, ridiculous. It? <laughs> I know. You'd go to a nightclub, you'd get on an airplane, you'd be in yep. the office. Yep. Your grandpa would be smoking. Like everybody smoked. And it was, we thought that it made you tough and independent and glamorous. You know, it was Hollywood. Everyone in Hollywood smoked and we all wanted to be like Audrey Hepburn. Mm-hmm. So Imagine what they had to do, what governments had to do to make us all realize there's a correlation between smoking and cancer. Well, they had to show us pictures of blackened lungs. They had to scare us. They had to say, look, this is the damage that occurs when you do this normalized behavior. Can't do it anymore. And we need to do that with bullying and abuse. We need to show images of brain scans because all forms of bullying and abuse have been documented as damaging the brain. You can see it on a brain scan. And the neuroscientists look at it on fMRI and MRI and EEG and other assessments. So what we have to do is get all of us visibly thinking about our brains and seeing the harm that can be done to it. And we don't even know it. It's invisible. I'm, I'm just interested, Mum, just going back a little bit here. What happened to the teachers at the school? And second part, and how is your son today? Um, the teachers at the school, um, everything was covered up. So they never missed a day. Supposedly, there was this six-month-long investigation that was a sham investigation on many levels. Um, And so the teachers were never suspended. Well, we all know no one will speak up about a teacher that's in power over their child. That would be foolish. So um, they kind of controlled everything that way. And um, I guess that they're still teaching today. And uh, hopefully, they've, they've learned that that kind of behavior they were doing was really harmful. I mean... They're all parents, so I imagine they're invested in learning that, you know, that these types of behaviors that are very likely came from their own childhoods, their own bullying they suffered at the hands of adults, maybe teachers or parents. I really don't know. But everything just kind of went on. It was all covered up. The government was invested in covering it up as well, so they didn't do anything either. And it, it actually, the whole story just became more tragic um, I went from that school, I resigned in protest. And as I told them, I was going to resigned in protest. I started working at another private school and um, I, I just was exhausted by the time I got there and I just kept my head down. I had to learn all these different things because it was a different, it was international baccalaureate. I'd never taught it before. So I knew it was being covered up and, you know, we all had our guesses about what was happening, but again, all covered up. And I just, by that point was exhausted didn't have, it wasn't my problem. So then in my third year at the school, 
um, a student came up to me in October who I taught the year before. She's an international this student. This is the young woman that you name Ellen in the book, isn't it? Yeah. This is Ellen in the book. Yeah, which is not her real name. Yeah. And um, she was an international student from China and she'd been in the homestay program with the principal and his wife. And they had, I don't think their kids were at home. They have three adult children. And um, she was living with her father who had come from Macau to, to be with her in her final year at school. And she was just, just a fabulous kid, absolutely brilliant and funny and uh, an amazing athlete and just a genius, basically. And um, so she came up to me in the library and she said, I need to talk to you. And, you know, you have daughters, you can tell when there's something wrong. So we went outside and I said, well, you know, what's the matter? She said, I'm being sexually harassed by a teacher. And I just honestly, my heart just sank. I was like, don't tell me about it. I would have to take you to the commissioner for teacher regulation. I have a legal duty to report. I'm so afraid for you. I don't think they're a safe place to go. I don't think they have the right. I don't think they're trying to protect students. Like, oh, I just was so conflicted. And um, so I said to her, well, we need to go and speak. Let's go and speak to the principal. Mr. Calderwood will know what to do. And, and all of this is covered up. I'm telling you this, but nobody else knows this. In Canada, in my province where I teach, Commissioner for Teacher Regulation, everything, it's all covered up. It's all being swept under the carpet. She says to me, it is Mr. Calderwood. So he's been her family stay father. She's lived in his home. He's in his 60s and he's been sexually harassing her. So he's instantly suspended, but the school covered up. Everybody was told he was on stress leave. Then they, we were told he was on sick leave. Then we were told he's retiring early. And a police investigation uh, unfolded and nobody even knows that he did but, this. But then they even had a ceremony to, to celebrate, didn't he? Which I think for the young woman you write about, what could be more insulting? What could be more in your face than let's celebrate this man, all the years that he's put in? You know... I think from a brain point of view, um, and I consulted with neuroscientists on this, in particular, Dr. Michael Merzenich, when you do that to a developing brain of a child, you, you actually do such damage to the brain. Dr. Michael Merzenich describes it for lay people like myself. He says, when the brain can't answer the question, it starts to degrade on all levels. It's like it's suffered such a traumatic blow because the brain... The brain is structuring, it's constantly making your reality for you. And when you stop the brain's ability to make reality, because you don't know anymore, is that a pedophile? Is that a, a principal that we're celebrating his service to the school, even though he can't be at the ceremony? Not allowed on campus, not allowed near students, but we're gonna pretend that he was this amazing educator right in front of you and not warn you and not, you know, and there she- There's so many mixed messages, isn't it? And you can understand the confusion because yeah, as a as an adult listening, I'm um, reading it as well. It just enraged me, you know. It was it was a terrible thing to do, and um, you know she she had attempted suicide two weeks before that. And those school administrators that put on this pantomime of the great educator, they knew she had attempted suicide two weeks before. She was in lockdown in the psych ward for two weeks before her graduation. And um, so I went to the psych ward and uh, I sat by her bed and I brought her a book and I said, you know what, Ellen, if you could have anything, if I could allow you to do whatever you want next year, you don't have to go to university, you don't have to be here, you don't have to be on the island, 
You could go to any place in the world. I mean, let me talk to your parents. We could try and make something happen. What is it that you want and need? And her face just, it lit up like I've never seen before. It became suffused with light. And she said, I just want to die. I was like, I just, I was unable to help her. And so um, she did go off to university like I did. She went to the same university I went to, University of British Columbia. And so I assumed I was damaged by teachers and I got better. How can we expect a child not to think she's the perpetrator when she's bombarded with that from society? So she's in her first year of university and she writes me an email and says, you're not going to like this. But Mr. Calderwood reached out to me and I met with him. This kid has suicidal ideation. I could not believe it. I picked up the phone. I called the police. I said, why are there no restrictions on this man? Why is he allowed to access her? Where's the commissioner for teacher regulation? They should have put restrictions on him. Well, of course, the police are like, well, you know, Crown Council wouldn't let us charge him. Um, I'm very, they said, we're very surprised that he reached out to her. But it's like they couldn't do anything. And the commissioner just had disappeared him from the system. There were no restrictions on his certificate. He just, it's like he never existed. And they have this elaborate registry that you're supposed to be able to go to as a parent or as a, as a school and find out if the person has a black mark on their record. Well, he was just disappeared, all cover up. So I, I couldn't do anything. So then um, after that meeting, she took definitely a far worse downward spiral. He made her feel guilty. He made her... She said, all I did was try and have empathy for him. You know, she felt like she'd ruined his life because he'd obviously lost his job, et cetera. And um, he, you know, had made, he said to her, the only problem with our relationship was that you were 17, you know, just honestly like mind bending. And then in the following year, I just, I received an email from another student saying she'd taken her life. She put one last Facebook post up, didn't she? And you were able to interpret all the signs of the trauma and her confusion and actually it really matched the science that you've now researched didn't it yeah it's that um it's hardly surprising but the thing is you know we have a problem right now in the world a huge problem with youth suicide so in america right now statistics just came out that from 2000 to 2018 youth suicide that's 10 year olds to 24 year olds has increased 57 percent 57 percent and you have a word for it don't you you call it bully side which i had never heard before when i was reading your book and i thought yeah, it is that the trauma, the bullying, the abuse, the put downs, the joking, the all of that is yeah, bully side. They can't cope with all of the ridiculing and the humiliation and what it does to their brain. And you know, the thing is, my big um, response to all of that is, I want every single young person, every ten-year-old to 24 year old, I want them to know that if their brain is signaling these types of um, this noise and this chatter and this dissociation, if it's having this horrible reaction where they just want to disappear, I want them to know that they need to go straight to the best brain scientist, the 
best psychiatrist, the best mental health professional, the best doctor, and they need to explain, I have a problem with my brain. It's giving me a lot of negative uh, panicky signals. I need you to help me get on track and really monitor me so that I can get better because I know I can rehabilitate my brain. I know that it is wired for healing and repair. So please stand by my side as a professional and help me get better because we could get all of those brains better. Yeah, because there was a line in your book that I really jumped out at me. What fires together, wires together. And what the brain does a lot of, the brain gets good at. So it gets good at all the negative stuff, but if it can get good at the negative stuff, it can get good at the positive stuff as well. Absolutely. And that that's the big takeaway from the bullied brain. And this is, I want everyone to hear the subtitle, which is heal your scars and restore your health. It is well-documented in science that every single one of us, no matter what's happened to us, we can return our brains to organic brain health. And then, I mean, imagine, it's like getting fit. So we learned in the 1980s that if we exercised, if we committed to an exercise regime, we could make our muscles stronger, we could get our aerobic health going, we could make our heart more resilient, we could get our lungs filled with the capacity to pump oxygenated blood through our body and brain. We could do transformative things with our health. Same thing with the brain. It's the same uh, fitness revolution we need to have right now, but it's for the brain. We can strengthen our brains. Just as you said, what fires together, wires together. What you practice, what you say to yourself, what you do every single day is constantly shaping and making your brain either stronger or weaker. And, you know, it goes back to, I think of your journey a lot and what you did. And what I find fascinating is that even though you suffered this terrible thing, you didn't become passive. Passivity is one of the, like when you throw in the towel on your brain and yourself and your life, you know, it's the worst thing you could do. But I think of you going to Israel Mm -hmm. and like, what a courageous thing that must've been. And I love how you, you remained active and you, you left home, which must have been a frightening thing to do when you were someone who had been brutalized by, by venturing out, by trying things, by making mistakes. And here you are going to the other side of the world. And I just, I just love that courage and that activity. And it's what we have to encourage our young people to do. You, you don't need to give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't become passive. There's so many things you can do to get your brain healthy. Absolutely. But it, almost as if, we need to start teaching like in, you know, nursery, like mindfulness, you know, because it's really where we put our attention, isn't it? You know, if I think I'm wrong, I'm right. If I think I'm right, I'm right. It just depends where, what I think, isn't it? Yeah. What goes on in our head? What I found a fascinating chapter in the book, I can't remember the young man's name, but it was the young man who went, who went on to write the film Whiplash. So he was the jazz drummer, which was an incredible film but it left me exhausted and now I understand why it left me so exhausted because of all you almost didn't see the bullying you did see the bullying but you didn't so some people would say that he was only so creative because of the bullying and the abusive um, teacher that pushed him and pushed him but where where do we draw the line of, of pushing someone to get that creativity out well, it, the um, the writer and director of that film is Damien Chazelle. So Damien Chazelle did not become a brilliant jazz drummer from relentless uh, abuse by his high school teacher. He walked away from music, even though he was passionate about it. And that's what my son did. You asked, you know, where is my son now? Well, he was passionate about basketball and he's never going to play competitively again. He walked away from it, even though he should have 
probably gone on to play college. It would have brought him a lot of joy and, mm -hmm. and experiences. But I mean, they did so much harm to him. He just, he associates playing basketball, his love with abuse. Damien Chazelle associates music and playing the drums with abuse. And that's why he wrote a film about it. So my son now is, he's a very resilient person like yourself. And he's gone on to work in camera in the film industry. And it's funny because all of his basketball and sport training, he's an, an amazing athlete and he's very, very, he's six, four and very athletic. And he's the perfect cameraman because he has to move like a, uh, you know, sort of a ninja through all these different people doing all these different things, holding extremely delicate, expensive equipment that's very heavy and and just sort of be an athlete in that way. So he's really found his his team. He loves the camera crews that he works with. He loves the actors and the directors. And he's he's very um, he's come full circle. But it was a it took a long time for him to get over um, it wasn't just the abuse. And he would tell you, if you talk to him, he would say, it wasn't the abuse that really, really did the damage. It was the re-victimization on the part of the headmaster and the chaplain and the board and the commissioner for teacher regulation. That was just so traumatizing that everything he'd been taught, all this, you know, have integrity, be an upstander, all of this was just a lie was really hard to take. And he had to, he had to realize that sometimes if the system is broken, you just have to walk away from the system. You, you, it's very difficult to change it. He was really let down is what you're saying. Really let down by the people for a start that should have been in positions of power, the teachers, the ones that abused him, but then the others that could have made changes and supported him. They just let him down. So I'm just yeah. wondering before we kind of come to the end to what advice would you say to, I don't know, a parent that's maybe listening or someone else that feels this resonates too much with them? You know, they are getting bullied and they realize the negative chatter that they have inside their head is, is a sign of uh, it's not good. It's, it's negative. What would you advise someone to do? Well, in the book, I use a lot of visualization and mindfulness techniques, not only because they're backed up by a lot of um, brain science research, but also because I think it's, I found it to be a very effective way to start to, you know, if you close your eyes and envision your brain, you have to understand that you might have internalized a mind bully. And that can make you feel horrible. It's always at you. It's always criticizing. Everything's your fault. You, there's no hope, you know, it doesn't respect you. And you really have to identify that mind bully as a survival strategy. Your brain has brought that into you to kind of keep you safe. Just as if you burned your hand on the stove, your brain would never let you forget it. It would constantly remind you of it because that's how it keeps you alive. But you have to be the one in charge. It always has to be the mind that's in the driver's seat and the brain is the engine. The brain is the power. But you're the one, the only one that can tell your brain what the situation really is. It can't see anything. It gets all of its messages from you. So you, it's always the mind. So I encourage people, parents and students and teachers and coaches, everyone, what you need to do is close your eyes, do the deep breathing, because the deep breathing tells your brain there's no predator. You wouldn't be deep breathing if you were in danger, so do your deep breathing to let it know, look, we have time to have a conversation here, we're not in danger. And then you want to take the mind bully and you want to change it into an empathic coach. And I do a lot of work in the book showing how to listen to this different kind of voice. The empathic coach is curious. 
it believes in you. The empathic coach wants to see you succeed. So all of us have the capacity to do that. And that, I mean, that would be my sort of final point. But in the book, there's many exercises, there's lots of research, there's activation steps, there's a whole program to say, okay, look, if I'm worried about someone in my life, if I have bullying tendencies from what's happened to me, if I'm a victim, I've got to get to work. And I think I think we can I think it's going to be a grassroots movement. I think we are going to bring change. I'm really hopeful. Good. That's the good place to end. There there is there's always hope. I do believe there is always hope. Well, the time has just literally flown by. I can speak to you for hours. It's it's just so fascinating what we can do with it, but how it is the neuroplasticity that you talk about, how it is possible to remould it and to change it and to think in a different way. So this leads me to thank you so much for getting up early over in Canada and being a guest today. Unbroken. Healing through storytelling. If you haven't already, go on, download, subscribe, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us get this important and life-changing message out to as many people as possible. There is already a selection of fantastic episodes to choose from and a brand new one coming soon. Unbroken. Healing through storytelling. Playing now on all the main platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher for Android, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and here. Play Unbroken, the podcast with Madeline Black.